0: Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For each episode, we choose a new book that's especially interesting, and we chat with the author of that book. For this program, I had the pleasure of speaking with Yulian Hammer about her wonderful new book, American Muslim Women, Religious Authority and Activism, More Than a Prayer, which came out in 2012 from University of Texas Press. In 2005, Amina Wadud led a mixed-gender congregation of Muslims in prayer. This event became the focal point of substantial media attention and highlighted some of the tensions within the Muslim community. However, this prayer gathering was the culmination of a series of events and embodied several ongoing intra-Muslim debates. In this great new book, Hammer outlines the circumstances leading up to the prayer event and employs it as a point of convergence to explore the multiple discourses surrounding Muslim gender issues. The debates following the prayer fell into two discursive frameworks, legal and symbolic. Hammer explores these themes through a broader body of sources written by American Muslim women both in relation to exegetical projects or legalistic frameworks leading towards gender equality or human rights. While gender remains central to the arguments of the book, Hammer uses a subject to examine various issues related to contemporary Islam, including participation, leadership, law, media, and self-representation. In our all-too-brief conversation, we discuss the disintegration of traditional modes of authority, quote-unquote progressive Muslims, embodied tafsir, feminism, the hijab, politics of book covers, mosques, networks but we were only able to scratch the surface of this wonderful book. I encourage you all to pick it up and read through it, and in the meantime, enjoy our conversation. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Um, Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Yulian Hammer about her wonderful new book, American Muslim Women, Religious Authority, and Activism, More Than a Prayer. Good morning, how are you?
1: Good morning, I'm okay,
0: how are you? I'm <laughs> good, thanks again for, for making time to, to talk to me. Um, the book the book is very, very good, you do a lot in it, and we will certainly not get to talk about all of it, uh, but uh, I will try to squeeze it all in here. But before we get into the, the contents of the book, could you um, give us a little bit about your background, how you got into Islamic studies?
1: So there's this mythical story of how I was in 11th grade when I decided that I really wanted to learn Arabic, and um, I was told that women shouldn't do that because they couldn't actually work in Middle Eastern countries, Um, which was an interesting experience, but I'm not easily deterred. And so when I finished high school, I um, applied for a program at Humboldt University in Berlin where I grew up in Asian and African studies. Um, it was a very big sort of unit that had different subunits to it. And I was actually scheduled to become an interpreter for Japanese and Korean, which I wasn't very excited about as well. I went there on my first day of university in 1990 and asked if I could learn Arabic instead. And they said, well, we don't have Arab, Arab studies or Arabic literature, but we do have an Islamic studies institute and you could go there. And that's what I did.
0: What, um, do you have some mentors that were influential, either uh, as you were doing your your studies or later on that have been kind of very influential on in your work?
1: While I was a student in Germany, I did both my master's and my PhD at Humboldt University. Um, this was a time of great upheaval in Germany after the wall coming down and reunification. The most important thing, person who has really shaped the r- direction that I went in was Peter Heine, who um, came to Humboldt in 1993 and who was at the time the only trained anthropologist in Islamic studies in Germany. Um, historically and traditionally Islamic studies in Germany is a rather Orientalist tradition, very text-focused, very language-focused. And I have always been much more interested in contemporary issues. And he was, he nurtured this interest both in ethnographic work and in contemporary Muslim societies. And I don't think without him, I would have been able to go in that direction in the way that I did. When I came to the U.S., after I finished my Ph.D., I was a postdoctoral fellow at Georgetown for a year and a half. And Jonas um, Stavido and Ivan Haddad were, at the time, very supportive and very helpful in trying to understand how the American academic system and Islamic studies in America are really rather different. And so when I came here, part of the, the sort of challenge for me was that I didn't have the kind of network of graduate students and mentors that um, American students usually sort of develop over the course of their graduate school. And so I started from scratch building that kind of network, and there are many people that were really, really important. I mentioned Espirito and Haddad um, a little bit later, when I moved to North Carolina, with just um, Cal Ernst and um, somewhat later on, Mustafa, who are now both colleagues in my department that were incredibly supportive and helpful and have done all the things that mentors do, including writing recommendation letters for me, because that was one of the challenges that I sort of encountered.
0: Can you tell us a little bit how this project came about?
1: Yes. Um, My dissertation research um, was about um, Palestinians who um, had grown up in different diaspora communities and um, went back. To live in Palestine in the West Bank primarily after the Oslo Agreement in the 1990s. So, with an ethnographic project, um, I had spent a significant amount of time um, in Palestine. I lived there for almost two years. And when I came to the US, there were two, two challenges. One was that Palestine studies, um, not unlike in Germany, but in different ways, is incredibly politicized here. And I was very concerned that I would have a very difficult time getting a job, basically. And um, I also couldn't travel for a while because I wasn't a new immigrant, so to speak. And um, I had done some research on Palestinian-Americans because part of the group that I was studying as young Palestinians who returned were Palestinian-Americans. And through that, I had sort of encountered a, a broader investment that some Palestinian Americans made in the 1990s, especially in American Muslim organizations and, and American the American Muslim community more broadly, which is trying to negotiate being Palestinian American, Arab American, and a contingent of them also um, American Muslims. And um I had realized in terms of disciplinary training, I come from an era studies background, that if I wanted to um, work in, in in US academia, I was probably going to invest much more in religious studies. And so it made sense to start with what I already had, which was sort of a sense of diaspora studies and migration and integrate that with my interest in in Islam and Muslims, and so that's sort of broadly how I got in that direction. And I've had an interest in um, American Muslim thoughts so the work of American Muslim intellectuals for a longer time, and it was actually, you're not going to believe this, but it was actually surprising for me how I ended up um, doing work on women. I've always had an interest in gender studies, but I had made sort of a vow to myself to not end up in the gender corner, because it's still a corner, in my view. Um, and then somehow, rather naturally, it ended up being a focus on American Muslim women scholars and intellectuals, and the last step was to... Uh, focused this material, this enormous amount of material. I had pretty much collected everything American Muslim women had ever written and published. And um, I needed some kind of hook to put that together in, in, in some meaningful way because it was so much material. And so um, at some point in 2006, I had a, a student, an undergraduate student, who was doing research. Um, who ended up writing a um, seminar paper on the woman led prayer in American Muslim women scholars um, and that became the lens to which I looked at this material and selected which things would sort of connect to that long story <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's great um can can you talk about um you, you mentioned you have this mass amount of, of data, basically. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about your, your sources? Because it's both ethnographic, but it's also a lot of text. So can you talk about your sources and how you kind of navigated those?
1: So it's primarily textual um, in the sense that um, I didn't attend the woman met prayer. prayer. Um, I started by saying that I basically have no idea what I was doing on that day. Um <laughs> And, and it, so, so it wasn't something that was on my radar. I remember reading about it, but not sort of connecting it to anything academically. And um, I did make a decision because I had come from this body of text to not do real ethnographic research, as in talking to people who were at the prayer or talking to the authors of the the texts that I had collected. Primarily um, because I would argue that that would have changed the direction of, of the book tremendously, um, because of course it would have become much more about how people negotiate their own perceptions of what they've done in the past. And um, I also didn't want the authors to interpret their writing for me. I wanted to approach the text on on their own. Terms, so to speak. And so, in, in my view, it's primarily a textual. study. Um, and the, what looks ethnographic there, um, as I see in that chapter, is based on on a video recording of the the, the prayer um, that someone did and that um, they graciously shared with me.
0: Um, one of the the real unique features of this book is you're, you're basically studying many of your peers and your colleagues. Um, yeah. Could you, could you talk a little bit about that for any, anyone in the field who might end up doing something like this? What, what might be some of the challenges of, of studying your peers?
1: So really my advice is just study dead people. <laughs> <laughs> Cause, because it's, it's so much easier Um, And I have to say, when I started this, um, they were less of my peers than they are now. And so um, this has been one of my great challenges because as you point out, when you um, study people that you also know um, or get to know, um, you have to deal with what they think about your readings of them. And I have gotten some feedback from, from various people Especially the ones that are one generation older than me, um, sometimes a little matronizing um, about how I read and misread some of their intentions. But that's precisely why I didn't want to um, do interviews. So, so, but it is a challenge, and it's also, as I pointed out in the introduction, it's also been a challenge for me because I, I, negotiate this, with, this, this boundary between um analytical work and an investment in the communities the American muslim communities that i'm part of and my own in my own engagement as a scholar who's also an activist of sorts. and so um this is a difficult it, 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 it was a difficult experience and um I, I realized that i that i really quickly get to this consensus about Having to explain this, and in light of the recent um, discussions about um, methodology and approaches, and which scholars can be held critical, I do think that it is an attempt on my part to demonstrate that this is possible and that it is a an important contribution to scholarship, not one that replaces other kinds, but that that, that is part of the picture. That is how I look at it.
0: Yeah, I think you're. I think you're very successful in this. Um, the uh, so even though there's a there's uh, this focal point, this this prayer event, which I'm going to ask you to explain in a moment. Um, the book is really about the the discourse of gender, um, and yeah. and in the in the introduction, you note that. Um, that gender is now a mainstream discourse within intra-Muslim mm-hmm. debates. Um, I'm wondering if you could you could talk about that. Um, it, is there an assumption that these are not debates that are happening, or uh, why why gender and uh, how does it fit in here?
1: Yeah. So the reason why I point that out there is because um, the the assumption is often that Muslims only talk about gender because um, everyone from British colonialists to the American mass media makes them do that. Um, so, they, I mean, there's a history of, of linking the positions of women in, in, in Muslim societies to measuring the ability of Muslims to be modern. Um, so there is a colonial discourse, um, part of the colonial ideology, especially um, the British colonial ideology, and um, Leila Ahmed is someone who's done important work on that, that included arguments about how um, colonizing um, Egypt in particular, but also um, other um, Muslim-majority societies, was in part necessary because it would advance the position of women. And so this gender discourses among Muslim reformists and Muslim communities, I think are often represented as reactive, in need of reacting to that. And I think that there is some truth to that being a reaction primarily. Um, And so I wanted to point out that I think, in, in the in the discourses and, and debates that, that I would follow in, in the book, that I think that American Muslims have mainstream gender discourses in the sense that the scholars and writers and activists I talk about here might not be mainstream in American Muslim communities. They are on the margins. But the discourses themselves to be able to discuss the roles of women and um, the, the ability to be leaders of women, those are, I think, mainstream in the sense that everybody knows that you can't not talk about that. So I, I wanted to point out that, that there is there's at least some degree of agency in having conversations about gender that are not just about Moving over and over again, that Muslims can be modern, that Islam is um, compatible with modernity, or American society for
0: that matter. Um, let's let's discuss this this kind of focal point that kind of brings all these loose ends together. Mm-hmm. Um, can Can you explain or describe for, for people who don't know about this mm-hmm. um, this woman led prayer um, in two thousand five? Can you tell us about who, who was involved, uh, mm-hmm. what what exactly happened, and why it was important?
1: Can I just say that I need to read the book?
0: <laughs> you can, you can, I, but I uh, give them a tease. Um,
1: so um, the, the the event that I that I described in much detail um, in the first chapter of the book um, took place on March 18, 2005 in the Synod House of Translans the Divine in New York City. It was a uh, Friday prayer led by Amina Wadud, who led a mixed gender congregation in prayer and who also offered the Friday Ghutta. And these are in Islamic law two separate functions. So they're both, I think, need to be pointed out. The event was organized um was actually quite complicated, but by Asghar Nomani with um, um who is um, an American Muslim journalist and writer, um, who had just published um, a book called um, Standing Alone in Mecca, and sort of an autobiographical um, reflection on American Muslim communities and gender issues, and her own experiences with that, and Salima Kulatour, who um, is the editor of a very successful book called Living Islam of Laos, and an edited collection of um, American Muslim women's narratives in um, Sara the event was supported um, by the Progressive Muslim Union. And so there, there is a, there's a, there's a, there's a very particular direction in which that goes. And I and, and in terms of describing the event, so um, it couldn't take place in a mosque because none of the mosques in New York City were um, willing to host it. And one of the venues, which was an art gallery, um, was threatened because the prayer was announced beforehand, I think about a week before, and um, the debate basically started before it had taken place. In the end, um, at the Senate House, which is a very beautiful building. Um, There was a lot of security surrounding it because there had been threats. Um, There were about 120 people who participated in the prayer, um, quite a number of people who were observers. And about a hundred and twenty or so journalists, um, because it had right and there was a lot of interest So the,
0: the yeah. What and, and so so yeah. why why is this event imp- important? And and also why you talk about why it's it's not necessarily unique, right? So could you talk right. about both sides of this?
1: So. I wanted to make the argument, obviously, that the event was important, otherwise I wouldn't have written so much about it. Um, But I also wanted to point out that there was this this historical point. So it's not unique, both in the sense that there have been women met prayers before. So women leading mixed-gender congregations in prayer is um, not typical. It's not unprecedented either. And I try to explain that there is actually a longer history to it. Um, but this event is, is widely publicized. It's basically mediated. And, and, and I think that it, that it, that it kicked off a conversation that in that form hadn't happened before. Um, at the same time, and this is versus the question of whether individual actors push history or if history pushes individual actors to do certain things. Um, I would argue that if it hadn't been on that day with that set of people, something very similar would have happened um, relatively soon. So I want to point out that that I think that it is part of something broader that was happening in American Muslim communities um, in terms of gender debates, and so this symbolic event is significant, but it's... It, I, I I'm convinced that something similar would have happened even if Attar Nomani had not organized this particular one, even if Amina Aldood had not um agreed to participate in it, even if Assar Nomani had not wanted to promote a book, which is one of the the, the charges that you that, that you find in response to the prayer, something similar would have happened. So it's significant historically, but it's not unique either in happening at all or in happening um, in the way that it is
0: in the public. Um, Now, much of the reactions um, that you discuss in the book kind of uh, followed in two different kind of frameworks, Uh, one in kind of legal terms and one in symbolic terms. Can you talk about some of these responses uh, within this debate of the legal and symbolic importance? Mm -hmm.
1: So one one debate that happens um, and that's beforehand is whether it is actually um, in accordance with Islamic law, um, which becomes this, this term that's wielded by people as a as a weapon of debate. Um, and, and the question here is both whether Islamic law can possibly be interpreted to accommodate the possibility of a woman leading Friday prayers and giving the Friday khutbah, And the other question, and this is important and often gets lost in the conversation, is whether the prayers of the people participating in a Friday prayer led by a woman are valid and accepted by God. So so the debate is both about um sort of technical aspects of prayer, but ultimately the concern is about whether the prayers are considered valid because Muslims pray um in order to accumulate um deeds and and fulfill their 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 duties. Um, and so the, that that makes it legally significant. And um, the majority of the legal discussion um, point out that there is um, no support or very little support. What I found really interesting was that um, what comes out in the debate is that, that there was actually a historical debate in, among Islamic legal scholars about when, whether women can use prayers. And so we're talking like ninth and 10th century, and I find that really fascinating because the argument that this is all innovation and that it is a contemporary problem or that American Muslims are making this trouble because they're bringing gender into the, the Islamic conversation is actually not supported by the the um, legal documents that we have, the legal debate that took place um, in the 19th century about whether they can do prayer, so it had come up as a question before. And on the other level, and this is what most of the org- most of the organizers um, and, and early supporters of the prayer, that's the level that they argue on is that it is a symbolic event, that it is important to do this because it's the one form of women's leadership that, that book hasn't been conquered. And, and performing this prayer is, is making a statement. It's both making a media statement and a statement to communities. And I argue in the book that the intention was to generate Discussion and to further um, an intra-Muslim conversation about these broader issues, and I found in sort of tracing the the, the way in which that debate took place in print, um, I didn't, I wasn't able with the with the methods that I had selected to follow actual discussions in communities. I mean, I did see some of those, and I participated in some of those, but that's not sort of comprehensive. But what what happens in print online and in various kinds of writing is that the legal debate and the symbolic debate don't take place in conversation. They're sort of what I argue, basically, that they're talking past each other. So one side's making legal arguments and the other side is making symbolic arguments and there isn't really a way in which that will be resolved in any kind of way. So, so people position themselves in one or the other way.
0: Um, now, while, while certainly not all the people who are involved in the event Will self-identify in this way. Um, the, this term "progressive" comes up a lot, um, mm-hmm. certainly in the the, the organizers of the, the Progressive Muslim Union. Um, I'm wondering if you could kind of give us a sense of what does what "progressive" mean to these people who self-identify as progressive. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, well, as you point out, a range of things. Um, some of the People even who were at one point, at other point, involved in the um, Progressive Muslim Union are divided about what the progressive part of that means. I see it as an um, as as an, an initiative of Muslims who um, felt of American Muslims primarily who felt that they couldn't participate in interpreting their own tradition and translating that into their own life practices because there was this this sort of gap between what they were told their tradition was and expected of them and what they were actually willing and able to live. And um, the progressive Muslim Union has a complicated and relatively short history, and I think it's that that short and complicated history is a good indicator of how problematic the label is. Um, I mean, if you replace it with liberal, it would still be really problematic, and and it's invested with meaning in in all these different ways. Uh, I would look at it as as an attempt to be very open to reinterpretation, to be um, conscious, particularly of gender as a category of interpretation and to be generally open to significant change in the ways um, Muslims and specifically American Muslims practice their their religion
0: this is a this is kind of good lead into the, the in the third chapter you you talk about uh Gender justice and Quranic exegesis, mm-hmm. and you kind of frame that in this this term uh, embodied tafsir, kind of borrowing from from Sheikh's tafsir of praxis. Can you yeah. kind of explain what this is? What you mean by this?
1: Yeah. So um, a, a a big part of um, the materials that I looked at are um, textual. Reinterpretation. So um, various women scholars um, rethinking and rereading the Quran primarily, um, but I I argue that the prayer the the prayer event fits into that as a pattern because there are there are in fact other ways of interpreting the Quran and Sadiq Sheikh who the term who coined the term um Safir of practice uses it in a very particular context to argue um, in in her research with um, survivors of domestic violence in South Africa, Muslim survivors of domestic violence in South Africa, that you can that you can basically live interpretations of the Quran even if you never write down a word of it, that there is a way to 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 live self years. And I mean, there are various debates about whether the category of satire should be and can be analytically opened up beyond textual interpretation so writing a commentary on the Quran. And so, there are different ways in which this can happen. There are people who have argued that um, certain certain fiction, um, certain literature um, written by Muslims is in fact satire. That um, so that, that there, there, are other ways in which, um, there, um, there's a wonderful, um, dissertation by Kunaryoskaya who, or, who, um, argues that, um, particular American Muslim intellectuals have offered oral papir in their, in their work, for example, um, W.D. Muhammad. Uh, so, so that, that the, the category itself is open up beyond the kind of narrow textual interpretation. And so I argue that the prayer event itself is sincere by bodily movement, by participating in, in in a congregational prayer that that embodies this these alternative institutions. um
0: Now, the this this larger kind of gendered uh, exegetical project mm-hmm. um, is often uh, either. By the the authors themselves, or from the outside, as feminist, and um, I'm wondering if you could kind of discuss this term because um, the, some people, you know, adapt and uh, use this term feminism, but but a lot of people kind of reject this idea of an Islamic feminism. So can, can mm-hmm. you talk about this a little?
1: Yeah. Um, So there there are different layers to this conversation. There is the question of whether there is such a thing as Islamic feminism. Um, There is a debate about whether there's a distinction between Islamic and Muslim feminism and what those distinctions might be. And then there is um, a, a, a debate among women, Muslim women, scholars, and activists also about whether the term feminist should be used at all, and like all terminology, um, is incredibly politicized. And like the term progressive, it's invested with different meaning by different people. Um, the, the 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 point of contention um, is often sort of at the intersection of two issues. One is that much of American Mainstream feminism has been primarily secular. Um, so many um, of the earlier feminists, especially in the first wave, um, were women who thought of religion in, in general as part of the problem, as an expression of patriarchy, and that um, as beyond redemption, um, to use a very religious term. Um, so and of course they are religious feminists, um, both in America and in Europe. Um there's a there's a, a rich tradition of Christian feminism and a little bit later um, Jewish feminism, but they're on the margins of the feminist movement. And the second part of that story for me is that um many of the early feminists also used is um and Muslims as a backdrop for their own um for, for their own advancement so to speak. So to talk about the oppression of Muslim women um was was sort of like the the the, the worst example of what women um can go through and shouldn't be going through. And um as other scholars have, have um presented uh, much more eloquently, um, early feminists, European feminists in particular, were complicit in the colonial project and provided, um, p- p- arguments, um, for, um, colonial ideology. And so the term in that sense, um, is, is tainted. And, um, it is relatively easy. It has been relatively easy to dismiss, um, scholars and thinkers who use the label feminist for themselves as a Western "quote unquote" outside influence on Muslim society, so as something that is essentially foreign to Muslim societies and communities. So that the, the argument then is that it is not an indigenous concept and it is in fact a colonial concept. And so, um, women scholars have had to negotiate what that means for them. Um, to use or not use the label some use it very comfortably and have actually in fact um close connections and draw extensively on on existing um feminist theory while others are clearly very uncomfortable with the term and its implications and so each of the each of the the, the scholars in particular that i that i primarily scholars who reflect on on these dynamics um, has a different take on the term and whether they want to use it for themselves or not. And I make the argument that we, need to, as scholars, we need to be very careful in using the term for people who refuse it um, as a label for themselves because it think that it does um, sort of violence to their own self-representation and self-perception to force a term on them that they're not willing to, to employ for a variety of reasons.
0: Yeah. Um. Now, you, you go through um, several, several authors, um, and, of course, there's there's differences between these, but can can you talk, uh, just give us kind of a understanding of what are some of the shared chara- characteristics of these American Muslim women exegetes?
1: Yes. Um. Well, the first thing is that they don't share participation in a movement, um, and I'm very reluctant to represent them as a... as as a movement, um, many of them in both the the first wave in the 1980s and 90s um, and then into the 2000s um, have, I think, primarily seen themselves as um, lonely fighters for, for their own cause. Um, they have a number of things in common that they negotiate in different ways. I think the most important one is that red pigab in that chapter. Their assumption that gender justice or gender equality or sometimes even gender egalitarianism are a given. Um, so that's not negotiable and their assumption is that this is God's will. God wants gender justice. And they have this somewhat differing and pretty elaborate framework for um arguing that and all of the ones that I look at in, in this particular context have focused their work on the Quran. Um, um and to varying degrees um engage with the sunnah, with, with hadith tradition, but um both reject much of the Hadith tradition um, to varying degrees and rejects most of the existing exegesis on the Quran, the, the exegetical tradition, as patriarchal and thus inherently misogynist, which in turn explains why they need to come up with these new interpretations. And so another thing that they have in common is that they argue that new interpretation is necessary um, and required of Muslims in particular
0: um, eras and um Just so we can get through uh, at least a larger portion of the book, um, in, the, in the following chapter you talk uh, about women's rights and Islamic law. Um, I'm wondering if you could give us a sense of how American Muslim women have worked through some of these debates revolving around women's rights and, and gender equality in, in legal terms.
1: So um, these are two really different kinds of categories, right? So like on the one hand, um, part of the chapter um, engages with um, women scholars and activists who employ a human rights framework for talking about Muslim women's rights, um, which, as we you know, has um, a long history so human rights don't drop out of the sky, but are a product of um European 20th century post World War II history, and are very sort of determined by that history and by um, primarily European um, powers and politics. And so there is a debate about whether the way in which women's rights are defined as universal, as part of the universal human rights tradition, is actually applicable to Muslim society, um, or whether there's something um, that, that, that both um, concentrates power in the hands of, of um, Europeans and those of later Americans to define what women's rights are, or whether there is, in fact, a way to participate in this conversation on an equal level. And so there are um, activists who have um, adopted a human rights framework to talk about women's rights, um, are, I mean, you can argue about whether that's um, effective and successful, but some people have a real investment in that. And then there is um, in, another group, and there's relatively little overlap. I would argue there, who who say, well, the chronic exegesis and the reinterpretation is really important, but how this translates into real changes in Muslim communities and society is through Islamic law. And through interpretation of Islamic law, which is something that the majority of the, the chronic exeges, um, women, um, exeges don't do. So there's a sort of a, a, a distinction here. Um, and, and so the engagement with Islamic law, um, goes along similar lines. It's an argument about whether Islamic law needs to entirely be reinterpreted, whether you can retain methods but change outcomes. Or whether Islamic law should become completely irrelevant because it cannot be reformed. and so we have a whole spectrum of of ways in which um, women scholars engage with Islamic law. It's a smaller group, I would argue, than the chronic exegetes, and um, there is more of a conversation about that. But um, so, so placing the human rights discourse and the Islamic law discourse in one chapter was more a matter of space and that they actually really connected
0: with each other. Um, you also talk about the role of authority and, mm-hmm. uh, and how women have uh, begun to establish themselves in, in roles of authority. Can, can you talk about uh, this idea of kind of traditional sources of authority and then, and then some of the factors that allow women to now step up into these roles?
1: So very broadly speaking, I think the question of religious authority is one of the key questions that I see in religious studies and that has um, shaped and transformed Islamic studies in particular in significant ways. And so I would argue that this isn't only about women's authority, but that um, putting it in the context of gender is is just focusing it in a particular way. And so um, Muslim women in part, um, to argue with Khalid Abu um can step into positions of authority or claim various forms of religious authority because there is a transformation that takes place um, in the 19th and 20th century in the way authority is constituted in Muslim society. Um, it's both a sort of Democratization process that in part has to do with the, um, availability of the Quran. It has to do with the, um, with development in the application of Islamic law, um, um, going along with with nation state development. And then, of course, there is a particular American story to the ways in which how Muslims who um, live as religious minorities in majority societies that have nothing to do with Islamic law, negotiate application of Islamic law to their own life. Um, so where they're not applied by the state or in a, in a, in a sort of societal session, how does Islamic law actually function in, in that context? Um, and authority here is both the authority to interpret and authority to offer legal opinions. And I think this, this is actually where they're most connected. And and so the debate about religious authority in American Muslim communities is, is really complicated. Not only um, it's not all the women's fault. Um, there, there are other questions about who inherits, who, who inhabits positions of authority and how how American Muslims determine for themselves um sources of authority. And I make a distinction between, um, authority that is invested in people like, like scholars and, um, and leaders and authority that is claimed by those, um, leaders and scholars. And of course, they're not entirely independent of each other, but I do think that there's a way in which, um, someone can step into a, a, a position and claim religious authority and then needs to build what I describe as interpretive community so it has to convince others of their authority to do what they actually do. Um, and, and I do think that that women have, um, Muslim women have negotiated positions of authority in a variety of ways and that the claim to ritual leadership that the book starts with is actually sort of like a last... Last frontier in that regard, because um, as I would argue in, in many other areas, women have um, have actually advanced into positions of, of leadership, in particular communally. And there's a certain acceptance at least for women as prime exeges. And so, um, the question of Islamic law and then the question of ritual leadership, I think, are where 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 there is still quite a bit of space to, to move further.
0: Um, Can you talk a little bit about uh, education or institutional training, how that factors into the debates revolving around women's authority?
1: Yeah. That too, part of a bigger question about how um, especially American Muslims become scholars and and leaders um, in in their own right. And so um, I would argue that there are several different models and ways in which that works. One is to acquire... Um, training um, in various Muslim majority countries, so to look for authenticity of the tradition outside of the U.S. Zulena um, Gerval has um, done really amazing work on that question. In a second. Okay. Um, the ways in which the authority to interpret and lead is derived from authentic that are described as authentic because they are in, in sort of the heartland of um, the Muslim tradition. And of course they are alternatives, they are um, educational institutions um, of, of a variety of, of, of sorts in the American context, both online and in actual physical um, spaces. And the scholars in particular that I look at in the book um, are all people who have American secular degrees in everything from Islamic studies to political science. And so this question of what of that actually enables them to do the work that they do is part of the question of their their pedigree and legitimacy. And so this question of traditional versus secular training in Islamic studies or the Islamic sciences is I think at the heart of the question of who has authority. But as I as I pointed out, I would argue that, um, that whether somebody is actually recognized as authoritative and legitimate depends more on their interpretation than the pedigree. So someone who also has Islamic studies training from a Western institution can be invested um, and perceived as having legitimacy and authority. Because their interpretations are in line with what is perceived as the traditional status quo, and and that that goes across gender lines. I I think that that um, the the push isn't primarily against women as scholars and leaders. It's about particular interpretations that um, communities as 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 collective bodies push back against.
0: In the in the next chapter, you you place this authority uh, into a physical space. Mm-hmm. Um, can, can you talk about uh, not only the role of women as as ritual leaders, um, but 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 what is the role of women um, within the mosque, uh, mm-hmm. it, particularly in North America? Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is um,
1: sort of a chapter in the middle of the book, which is. Actually, kind of ironic because the the idea for the woman met prayer grew out of Asra Nomani's frustration with the way mosque space was allocated in her mosque. Um, so, so it starts out as an expression of um, serious disagreement with the with the, the spaces, the physical spaces, and and also the symbolic spaces that women have in American mosques. Now, part of Part of the issue here is that American mosques um, fulfill a number of functions that um, traditional mosques historically in Muslim-majority context didn't have, um, because they are um, centers of community organizing and community life in ways that, that a traditional mosque didn't have to be, because there were other venues where that could take place, and women have been involved in mosque building and mosque usage. Um, that have been lost in, in the American context, in the US context. And so this the question of where are their spaces for them is both a question of architecture, which is a whole other debate about whether American mosques should be traditional or modern or something in between, or whether they should fit into the landscape or not. And um and and part of that is that they're very, very there's a range of ways in which women are not participating in in congregational prayer in mosques in different regions of the Muslim-majority world. And um, some of these debates are are brought here. And, and so there is a there's a range of practices associated both with whether women um, participate in congregational prayers and where they do that if they do that so we have everything from um the um, down so the the basement space for women to um, an occasional place where you can find men and women praying side by side in a separate section and really everything in between from a physically entirely removed space to um a space that is um that is used by men and women um at the same time. And this isn't only about participating in prayer and have like being able to see the Imam and hear the Imam, reading the prayer, but it's also about um participating in lectures, being able to ask questions and a question that comes up um, all the time, which is whether women can actually lecture to men in lost spaces. So so they're there they are um these are negotiations of how to have mosques as religious in the American context and um, questions about how women can be accommodated and incorporated into um, those kinds of spaces. And it is very clear, um, especially from the more historical research in the earlier 20th century, that women were essential participants in community building. And so some of this is actually development away from somewhat more inclusive environments, um, space-wise even though I think it's clear to me as well that there are more women involved in mock organizing and community work than there were um, earlier like maybe six seven, six um,
0: within this context of, of space you also talk about the voice mm-hmm. uh, I'm wondering if you could uh, tell us kind of the direct and symbolic significance of the woman's voice in the mosque. Mm
1: -hmm. So I was already alluding to that when I was um, talking about whether women can ask questions um, to speakers or whether women can actually give lectures in mosques to men. And the underlying discourse is one that um, is is actually quite modern as in the, the very, conservative discourse about Muslim women's voices that points out that Muslim women's voices are part of what makes them um, sexual temptation for men, and that um, there are various limits that can be placed based on that argument on who women can speak to. It can extend to um, Quran recitation, call to prayer um singing, speaking on radio or television, and speaking to men that are not part of their um, immediate family. And so it's a it's a spectrum that that, that that inhabits and and in terms of participation, clearly when one is not um, able to speak, in a community setting, um, that has repercussions for, for their participation. And in the context of the, the prayer, um, this question of women's voices comes up both in the fact that, um, the Azan, the call to prayer was founded by a woman, um, in March 2005 and that obviously Amina Wadud used her voice both to give the khutbah and um lead the congregation in prayer and so the this, this question of whether women's voices really just practically speaking can and should be heard by men and what that means is um not the biggest part of this conversation but it certainly is significant and then the question of voice comes in in the symbolic way in many of the statements by the organizers of the prayer who represent the prayer as a way to giving voice to women in, in this very um, symbolic and, and significant way.
0: Um, what, uh, what happens uh, to the media representations of, of Muslim mm-hmm. women when we, when we take uh, American Muslim self-representations into account?
1: Um, several things. One is that, um, as I said, I think one of the purposes of the organizers um, in in publicizing the event beforehand and having this significant number of, of journalists and cameras and voice recorders at the event was to challenge media representation. Um, And and I'm using media media here broadly because I don't have time to separate it out. I'm very aware that there are very different kinds of dynamics that work in different forms of media. But um, to challenge what they see as stereotypical misrepresentations of Muslim women as silent and oppressed and not um, able to say or do anything. Because clearly here you have a group of women and men who support what they're doing who are speaking very loudly, who are doing what they what what they intend to do and who have things to say. So I think part of the purpose was to challenge media representation. I argue in that chapter though that in a way each of the main actors also steps into already existing media frames. Um, on two levels. One is that the, the sort of lonely fighter representation that both Ashtar Nomani and Amina Wadud um, fall into, um, Nomani much more willingly than Wadud, I think, um, basically means that they really confirm what this media frame already represents, which is that they are an exception to the norm, which is that Mokumbo they are oppressed. So um, they, 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 they are examples of um, women who are trying to sort of shake off this oppression, but they are an exception. And the other really big danger that I see, um, and I don't know that I've seen that um, reflected upon enough, um, in, in, my, in, in my view, is that the representation of American Muslim women um maybe more broadly, as less oppressed than other women in Muslim-majority societies. So comparing Asra Nomani to um, women in Afghanistan, for example, or Asra Nomani writing about women in Saudi Arabia as so very different from her, actually reinforces the idea that Muslim women in Muslim-majority societies are even more oppressed. Um, And so there's there's this way in which self representation and claiming the right to self represent um is often really well intentioned and I'm not saying that it isn't that it isn't also um changing things over time, but I do think that there is a significant danger in um in assuming that that's actually going to break the stereotypes, so to speak, or to speak in the title of one of the books that I looked at chattering the stereotypes. Because
0: I think it, it often doesn't do that. It does the opposite. Um, now, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time, mm-hmm. but um, there's uh, one other thing uh, that I, I want to note. Um, now, I, I really like in the conclusion that mm-hmm. uh, you don't just kind of wrap it up for us. Um, what I really appreciate is you you take, uh, take a moment to kind of reflect on what what you've left out and how how your study can kind of uh, mm-hmm. lead to other examinations within this kind of discourse of gender and um, I, I wanted to ask you though since you've kind of talked about this this mass of, uh, of data that you have and you have mm-hmm. a chapter on these these memoirs or these personal writings um, you, you talk uh, you don't really talk about the hijab at all in the mm-hmm. in the book until this this conclusion but uh, you, you, you talk about the, the hijab in relation to these book covers uh, mm-hmm. on this um, since 2001, fairly uh, well-developed kind of literature. Can, can mm-hmm. you talk about how the hijab uh, kind of situated here?
1: Yes. So um, I took the advice of um, two of my um, colleagues and friends, Lorena Verbala and Rosemary Hicks, at a workshop we were at together, um, I think, in 2008. Um, where they both said don't have a chapter on hijab because it will it will basically take over the entire book and of course the question of hijab and women covering women's bodies is all over this literature that i looked at especially the memoirs and narratives and i was really concerned that it would sort of hijack all the other analysis and there is plenty of literature on um, hijab, among American Muslims and more generally. And so um, I'm frankly a little bit tired of having this conversation. And
0: Well, forgive and so, me then.
1: No, no, no. <laughs> no. It's, no it's, it's just that I really didn't want it to hijack the entire book and um, putting it in one chapter that I really didn't want to write that much in a book that was already longer than my publisher was happy with. so <laughs> um, it wasn't a very difficult decision. But then um, – the question of the book covers was sort of a way to get away with that, to say, I acknowledge that that's there, and um, I'm glad that other people are doing it. I just want to point out how this works in the context of the book covers, and just I want to point out that I'm very, very proud of my book covers. Um, and this wasn't that easy. I approached my editor and I said, look, now that I have this, this, this um, segment in the concluding chapter about book covers, um, I want to point out that it would be really ridiculous if we came up with a cover design that had a woman with hijab on it. <laughs> and he said, well, yeah, I kind of see the point. So what do you want? Um, and so I sort of went back and forth. And eventually we ended up with this, which is a picture I took myself to show them what I had in mind. And then basically just took the photograph that I took and said, okay, we'll go we'll put that there. I'm very proud of that because the politics of book covers, as you see in that concluding chapter, are really complicated. And I was very worried about looking like a real idiot, talking about the politics of book covers, and then ending up with some version of the hijabi woman on my cover. So I'm proud that that I won that. Um, but it's also because it's the university publisher who was open to that conversation.
0: Yeah, it is a very beautiful book uh, as well. Thanks. So for, for those listeners who can get their hands on it. Um, before I let you go, can you can you tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about what you're what you're working on now, or what might be coming out uh, in the future so that we can yes. explore your work further?
1: Sure. So one thing I'm happy to report is that a chapter that didn't make it into a book on um, the dynamics of Muslim women scholars in American academia uh, actually ended up um, being. Properly written and finished, and uh, will be part of the Cambridge Companion to American Islam that Sapi and I have been editing that should come out sometime next year. So that I was very happy that I found a space there to include something that I couldn't fit into the book because I think it would have been good to. to it, it was good to sort of finish that up. And the new project that I'm working on is um, an attempt. I think it's working really well, but yet it's still an attempt at this point to connect textual and ethnographic work. I am working on a project tentatively called Peaceful Families, American Muslim Efforts Against Domestic Violence. Um, so I'm not looking at. The fact that there is domestic violence in Muslim communities, but as what American Muslims have done um, since about the nineteen eighties in order to address domestic violence in their communities. And so they will eventually, inshallah, be a book. Um, I've written several shorter pieces that engage with aspects and segments of that, and so that's what's been taking up uh, most of my time. And in, in an interesting way, it's a it's a really it's a very logical um, extension of this book that we're talking about here in the sense that one of the inspirations for it was that some of these um, chronic exegesis that I studied had to do with um, verse 434 um, which is a key verse for questions of um, marital hierarchy and the disciplining of wives and some of the exegesis that I studied um, had important and significant things to say about that. And so there's a direct link between that or, and that work I, I'm doing now. And the other important step for me is that it takes me away from exclusively focusing on women, which I've increasingly argued isn't really gender studies, to looking at both men's and women's approaches to questions of marriage, um, marital hierarchy, gender roles, and domestic
0: violence. Excellent. That sounds great. Um, well, thanks again for for making the time to, to talk to me. Uh, it was certainly enjoyable. I'm sorry that we weren't able to get to. You really uh, pack a lot into this book, so I encourage yes. all the yes. listeners to yes. to explore it further because we only <laughs> scratched the surface. But.
1: And there's one thing that I want to say that I'm actually really proud of. Um, um, some scholars in the Academy are very proud of writing books that, most people can't understand. I'm actually really most proud that I think the book has come out to be really accessible. And the main reason for that is that I did it with my own students in mind. I, I wanted to have a text that I could give them to explain the things in the way that I teach. And so I think it is very accessible for undergraduate students So as a bit of self-promotion. Um, I, I, I think... It's both scholarly but also
0: accessible on the level that most of our students will be on. I would agree, 100%. Thank you. All right, well, thanks again. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Yulianne Hammer about her wonderful book, American Muslim Women, Religious Authority and Activism More Than a Prayer, which came out with University of Texas Press this summer in 2012.